Well, for those who don't know me, my name is Steve Armstrong, and I am uh, walking us through the book of Luke. We've been studying Luke in this form for uh, several weeks now, and for many of you studying it with me even before it came to Wayside. And so we are now in chapter 14, as you know, moving forward. When we last met, Jesus was in the middle of a very interesting meal, to put it simply. He had been invited into the home of a leader of the Pharisees, we were told. And with him, we also understood, were his disciples. And we said Jesus, as he began in this meal, had already managed to embarrass the Pharisees by his healing on the Sabbath and doing it in such a way that they could not accuse him. And then he proceeded to correct the disciples themselves for their desire to achieve honor in the eyes of men, when they should have been focused, rather, on obtaining honor in the Father's eyes by remaining humble and seeking honor from the Father for their work on His behalf. And then finally, at the very end of what we studied last week, Jesus taught the host Himself, this leader of the Pharisees, whoever He was, to expect reward from God only if and when He shows favor upon the least deserving, rather than trying to curry favor with those who possess the means to pay Him back. Now, as you agree with me, I'm sure this is no ordinary dinner party. And... Jesus is no ordinary guest, and so we're not done with this scene as we continue forward in the chapter. So as we pick up again in this intriguing dinner party, let's take a moment to consider where Luke is going. It's always important for me, and I hope for you as well, that as you go back into a study at some point, you understand the context, because with that context comes an understanding of the circumstances. And we began to answer that a little bit last week when we took a look at how Jesus had embarked on a new focus at the beginning of this chapter, having left chapter 13, which we noted was the moment when the nation of Israel rejected uh, Jesus formally, legally, if you will, and he confirmed that rejection. He said, I'm done offering you the kingdom. That time has passed for the nation of Israel. And now that that event has occurred, Jesus' ministry focus changes, and Luke himself is starting to record that change, to document that change. First, he shows how Jesus no longer offers the kingdom, as I said, to Israel. And so his message, Jesus' message to the leaders of the nation has become one of challenging their authority, speaking in parables, concealing the truth from them, rather than giving, him, giving them a clear opportunity to accept the kingdom. And then secondly, Luke's message to the reader is to capture how Jesus now is focused differently toward the crowds themselves. His message to the crowds has become very black and white. He now wants everyone to understand that he himself forms a dividing line for these people. A dividing line of belief versus judgment. And Luke is going to increasingly emphasize that as Jesus himself does in his teaching. Jesus is a demarcation. Believe on him unto salvation or reject him unto judgment. The kingdom is at stake in how you view Jesus. That's now the focus as he moves toward the cross. We said he's probably only a few months away from reaching Jerusalem at this point in his ministry. Yet we have a lot of chapters left. So the teaching begins to become very focused on these two central issues, challenging the authorities for their hypocrisy and their illegitimacy, and then simultaneously challenging the crowds to understand the truth. And there's even a third I should throw in. It's sort of a minor one compared to the first two. But he's beginning now to really school the disciples in a more urgent manner about what they are going to be called to do. No, not, it's not sufficient now to simply train them on general truths. He wants to put a punctuation mark to that so that so that they understand what's at stake, so that they understand when he's gone what they're being left behind to do. So let's pick up with that long introduction. Let's pick up now in chapter 14, verse 15. Verse 15, when one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, meaning heard what Jesus had just exclaimed, he said to Jesus, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now we're going to go a lot further, but I'm going to pause right there for just a moment because this is an important transition. And it's actually somewhat humorous if you understand what's going on right here. The circumstances that led the man to say what he said were the circumstances we found in verses 12 through 14, and specifically in verse 14 out of this chapter. In those verses, Jesus had just given the host some advice, right? And without going through all that again and repeating the meaning of those, those uh, verses, let's just say that it probably was not seen as a compliment in the moment. So neither the host nor anyone who's sitting around that table in that moment would have perceived what Jesus said in those prior verses to be a compliment. In other words, uh, if you had been sitting around that table in that moment 
and you had heard Jesus' words to the host, um, this is what you might have heard, so to speak. You would have heard something like, the host was wrong to have invited all these privileged guests, and instead he should have invited the least of the world. And it's hard to avoid the conclusion that Jesus had insulted the host here, at least subtly, and if he had, and I think it's fair enough to say he had, this is a huge problem. This is a huge faux pas in that culture. To have been disrespectful to a host would have been a very pregnant moment, would have left everyone a bit stunned, and, and I doubt anyone was saying anything initially after Jesus' comment. So here's Jesus. He's just managed to say something that not only insulted the host, but by the way, by association, he, almost, he also maligned the guests, and that's particularly true with what he had said earlier in the chapter. Have you, have you ever been in a social setting of any kind where someone says something just off the mark? You know, they say something embarrassing, whether for themselves or someone else in the room, and it's kind of an uncomfortable moment, and everyone's just sitting there wondering what's going to be said next. That's what just happened. And, and, and in the midst of this pregnant pause, everyone waiting for someone to say something to break the silence, uh, everyone wanting to see this meal kind of propelled forward past this awkward moment, in the midst of all this, there's some brave individual, who we don't know who he is, who decides that he has the answer. He seizes on something he just heard Jesus say in verse 14. And, and what Jesus said, of course, was the host would be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Well, to any Jew, any good Jew for that matter, that term was synonymous with the kingdom, with the coming of the messianic kingdom, this time when God would usher in peace on earth and raise the nation of Israel to the chief nation on earth and rule with the, with the Messiah ruling on earth. This was what they had been promised out of their Old Testament. So the first thing that this guest thinks of when he hears what Jesus says, first thing he can come up with to get past the moment is, blessed is every man who eats bread in the kingdom. You know, looking around. Huh? Right, guys? Come on. <laughs> we can work this out. And it's really a throwaway line. It's really not meant to you know, elicit a lot of response except, except universal agreement. It's one of those statements you say where if you can imagine a, a similar pregnant pause or, or, or awkward moment at a dinner table in Dallas, Texas, you know, the next thing is, well, how about them cowboys after all, right? It's just, we all expect everyone to just get along on this point and then we'll just move past this little awkward moment. Well, uh, poor guy, he can't win because what comes next is essentially a parable designed to refute the very statement the man just made. Jesus isn't going to let him off on the hook that easily. Though the man expected everyone in that room to agree wholeheartedly that, of course, every good Jew seated around this table right now had every reason to expect that they themselves would join the rest of the nation around the, uh, the Lord's table in the day of the Messianic kingdom. They all expected that. Jesus, on the other hand, launches into this parable. Look at what he goes next in verse 16. He said to him, A man was given a big dinner, and he invited many. And at the dinner hour he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I've married a wife and for that reason I cannot come. And the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the cripple and the blind and the lame. And the slave said, Master, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. Pretty uh, dramatic moment, as you would expect in that dinner party. I mean, it doesn't seem to get any better as it goes along. Jesus is not content to play their games. And in the example that he gives here, he illustrates how, to put it simply, how many in this particular dinner crowd, the one that's assembled here at this Passover meal with Jesus, how many of them are going to miss the very meal that they were assuming would be theirs in the kingdom. That's the basic point, as, as you probably could tell out of the parable. But I want to take the parable apart for a moment because there may be some aspects to it you didn't catch. To start, the parable says we have a man giving a big dinner. Now, this is a special meal. This is a real event here. It's not specifically called a wedding feast like it, earlier parables in chapter 14. But nevertheless, this is not a casual meal. In fact, it's so big that the man sends out invitations long before the meal is ready. 
he gives people fair notice. I'm going to go to a lot of effort. I'm going to take a lot of time. There's a lot of effort and, and expense and, and work involved to get the meal ready, to kill the fatted calf, so to speak, to assemble all of the, what's needed for this meal. And it involves a lot of people, which only adds to the complexity, of course, only adds to the effort required. And to make sure you know you're invited, I'm giving you this heads up that when I can get the party ready, you'll be invited to this big meal. It's sort of an advanced notice that's been given out to the, to the guests. Meanwhile, the guests go about their lives. You know, they're not sure exactly when the meal is going to be ready, but they're interested. They've received their invitation. They're waiting for it. They're anticipating it. And then the day comes for the master to hold this feast, to conduct his feast. Now, in considering the real feast, and by that I mean in considering the one that will actually take place in God's messianic kingdom, the one that's been promised uh, to the nation and by extension to us today, the Jews had long been told about that coming feast. They had often heard about it. It was in their scriptures. Let me just give you one example out of Isaiah. In Isaiah 25, verse 6, and reading from there, the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all people on this mountain. And he's referring to this mountain on which the nation of Israel will rest, the Lord's mountain in the day of the Messianic kingdom. We know that mountain will be in the present day Jerusalem. And if you read Ezekiel, it's a huge mountain. It's bigger than anything that exists there today. We're talking about a new mountain will grow in that place. But moving on, he says, A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. And he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. This is a day to come, for obvious reasons, if you consider some of those details. And it is a banquet which he says will include not just his own nation, but even in that prophecy from Isaiah, if you notice, it includes other nations. So this is something that God has long planned to bring about in the world for the sake of his people and for the rest of the world as well. That's what the nation of Israel knew was coming. That was the promise, essentially, that the leaders of the nation of Israel had come to expect would be theirs. That's why that gentleman stood up at the table and said, Blessed is he who will eat at the table in this future day. That's what he was referring to, this coming blessing. Isaiah 25 goes on, one more verse. It will be in that day, behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that He might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. Even in Isaiah's prophecy, there is an implicit need to wait, to be ready, but yet expect a delay, expect some time before it can be fulfilled. And it's an emphasis here on time. There's been a lot of time waiting. There's been centuries of waiting up to the point of Jesus' walking on earth. And it's, in, it's consistent with the parable that the effort required for God to be ready for his banquet involves a lot of time, just as is in the parable the effort for the host to get ready involved waiting a long time. But now in the parable, Jesus turns the tables, so to speak, and he says, when the appointed day arrives for these specific guests, and they're being asked to come now and join at this table, the host is going to send a representative to pass the word that the table is ready. And it's important to note here that the host himself doesn't leave home to go gather his guests. He relies on a representative to send that message out to receive those people. And what are they going to do when they hear this message? Well, the, the representative here is who? The representative here is Jesus, because the host we know to be the Father. And the representative is sent out to invite the guests to come because now all is prepared, all is ready. And when this time comes, each guest makes an excuse for why they can't come. Now, I want you to consider what this means. Number one, they didn't say to the representative, I don't know who you are. I don't know what meal you're talking about. The parable doesn't suggest that in the moment, those who receive the message are confused about it are unsure about what is being said or what's being offered, there's a clear understanding, at least in the parable, of what's truly being offered. But then there's an excuse, sort of a polite way to be rude. An excuse. Because, in fact, rejecting this is a very rude thing to do. To reject the effort that the host has gone to. To essentially have said to the host, oh, you're having a party? Sure, count me in. Time goes by. The party gets prepared. Money is spent. Expense and effort is expended. And then the day comes and you say, oh, you know, just don't think I can make it after all. Have you ever had that in your own life? Have you ever made the effort to tell people in advance something you were going to do and you've gone to effort and then when the day comes, no one shows? 
Well, in a personal, earthly way, we understand the rudeness of that and the inconsiderate nature of that. But now think of it from a spiritual standpoint. When God the Father, through the prophets for centuries, had made clear to the nation of Israel what he was prepared to do for them and that a day would come when that prophecy, when that promise would be fulfilled. And now Jesus looks upon these very men who had been granted that opportunity to be the ones ushered into the kingdom. The privilege that that implied was theirs. And in response to that, they come up with excuses. Now, I like the fact that the emphasis in the parable is on excuse. On excuse. You know, it would have been very rude for these guests to have agreed on one point to go and then at another point just flatly told the master, you know what, I don't want to eat with you. I don't want to be a part of your party. That would have been, you know, so rude that no one could consider doing that. So what they chose to do instead was to come up with a pathetic excuse, an obviously pathetic excuse, and the hope here is that they will avoid the wrath of the host, if that were possible. That in some way the excuse could be seen as legitimate in the eyes of the host, and therefore the host would excuse them in a legitimate way, would not be angry at them for their reaction. Look at the first guest, for example, and let me show you how these guests are speaking in such obviously pathetic terms. He says, I have just bought land, and I need to inspect it. Now, to anyone who heard that in Jesus' day, to the men who sat around that table with him, there was no need for Jesus to explain why this was a pathetic excuse. Because to a savvy Jew, and anyone with money to buy land would have been savvy to some extent, this was an obviously pathetic excuse because when you purchase land in that day, and it's really no different than when you purchase land today, there is always a careful inspection of what you're going to buy before you buy it. And in fact, in that day, land was much more of a commodity of everyday life in the sense that you know whatever reason you had to buy it whether it was going to be for the water whether it was be to farm on it whether it was going to be to have your livestock graze on it whatever the purpose you had in wanting the land to begin with would have been very central to your everyday life you don't prospect in land in those days the way we have the luxury to do today not not very many people would have done that if any it was a far more important purchase so when a man says that he can't attend the banquet because he must inspect the land he's already purchased, it's clear that he's searching for an excuse because he would have seen that land well already. There's no need, in other words, for him to go back another time and inspect the land he's already purchased. The second man. The second man says he's just bought five yoke of oxen, which really means ten oxen. And he wants to try them out. Now, here again, this one's obvious to anyone in Jesus' day. It's just a pathetic excuse. Just like the, the man with the land you would have inspected these animals before you purchased them. But it goes even deeper than that. The, the, the facade here is even worse when it comes to the oxen because uh, uh, five yoke of oxen in Jesus' day would have been a very, very substantial purchase. Anyone with the funds to purchase that kind of oxen is going to be a savvy businessman by definition. A common Jew, for example, might have been able to afford one or two oxen. A, you know, a yoke of oxen would be equivalent to a middle class, two cars in the garage kind of lifestyle today. To have five oaks of the oxen, that's that, uh, yoke of oxen, that's like having a fleet of work trucks. That's like owning a whole stable of work trucks that you work a large piece of land with. You're rich, you're powerful, you have a fairly large enterprise, a fairly large operation. This is not your typical one ox family. This is, this is somebody who has the means to know better. What does he say more specifically? He says, I need to go try them out. What's he implying he's going to do with these? Get behind them? You know, uh, plow his own field? This man who can afford five yoke of oxen has got slaves and servants and hired helpers. He's got whoever he needs to take care of his land. It, it really, it, it makes absolutely, it would like Bill Gates saying, you know, I need to go down and, and, and write some software code for our next release because it's a little late. It would be, it's a bizarre thing to say. It's self-evidently a pathetic excuse, a transparent attempt to simply get out of something they don't want to do. Now, in addition to the fact that the first two examples are obviously pathetic, there's another common quality to them that I don't, I don't want you to overlook as we go through them. They both emphasize a love for the world and for its riches, a love for what these men possessed, combined, by the way, with a disregard for the grace and the provision being offered by the host. It's not insignificant that what distracted their attention or what excuses they used for why they couldn't attend had everything to do with their stake in this world with what the world they had today offered. The world that was a trap to them. It was a trap that kept them from joining this important meal. And ultimately, it was their own lusts, their own desires in this world that were the catalyst for their rude behavior. 
that gave them the reasons they needed to make those excuses. And as I've said already, and I want to emphasize, these are excuses. These men don't want to attend. They don't want to attend. They're using the excuses to gain some legitimacy in the hope that the anger of the host will not be poured out on them. It's interesting, though, if you were to go to Matthew's account uh, covering essentially the same thing, his account goes a little differently, so we're not sure it's necessarily exactly in the same moment. It could be another time when he used a similar parable. But in Matthew's account of this, if you know it, what, what does the host do to these men upon hearing their excuses? He kills them all. In Matthew's account, he kills them all. Which is to say that the wrath of the master is not going to be lost on these men. That their excuses don't have the hopeful effect, the effect they wanted. And then there's the final excuse. And it's a little different from the first two. There's a man who says he can't come because he's just been married. Because he has a wife. And, and this is interesting because it's not immediately clear to us why having a wife would have prevented the man from attending. Now, I mean, we know it's an excuse, but even then, it, it has to have a veneer of legitimacy. It has to have some, you know, some way the man thinks it can qualify as a reasonable excuse. So the question remains, why does having a wife give him an apparent way to get out from under this obligation? Well, if you look at it as perhaps a reference to the law itself, we begin to get an understanding. In Deuteronomy 24.5, there is one law with regard to a man taking a wife that may be relevant here. It says, when a man takes a new wife, he shall not go out with the army, nor be charged with any duty. He shall be free at home one year and shall, be given, and shall give happiness to his wife whom he has taken. Now, you may know this law. It comes up in other times during the Old Testament. We hear about men who won't go out to battle uh, for a year because they have a new wife. But in this case, the man may be hiding behind this law for his own purposes, because it's clear enough the law has nothing to do with whether you can attend a banquet or not. That's not implicit in the law. It's not as if you can point to the law and clearly show why he could not attend. In fact, if the man had wanted to attend the banquet, no one could have quoted him Deuteronomy 24.5 and says, you can't go. It could never have been used against him, in other words. It really had nothing to do with the circumstances. So he was free to attend if he wanted to, but it appears he was trying to suggest that he would have been somehow violating the law if he had gone. It, you know, kind of comes across like, oh, I'm sorry, I just got a wife. I can't, you know. I mean, my hands are tied. The law won't let me. You know, it's, it's spoken almost in that sense. Though any clear reading of the law would have said, wait a minute, it doesn't seem to me that you have that problem. You can come if you want. But it fits in with the first two, does it not? An excuse that if you tear it apart, look at it at all, you realize it's not going to hold up. It cannot substantiate why they don't come. But this final excuse is also interesting because it introduces here a new issue, the issue of the law itself. And I don't think that's accidental. I think that's, in fact, what Jesus is implying by including this kind of an example. These men in, the, in this particular parable, the first two, were absorbed in the world's burdens and, and by the possessions of the world, which are common reasons why men do not come to know the Lord and do not come to follow Him in one form or another. But these men around the table in Jesus' day, they were also unavailable to attend God's meal, the, the true Messianic kingdom, to receive Jesus as their Messiah, because they were already wedded to another. They were already wedded to the law, and they liked that. They preferred it, in fact. They were not interested in leaving behind the law, the one they had married. And by marriage here, I'm talking euphemistically, but I'm talking about the fact that their power structure, their authority within the culture... Even their incomes and their political power all derived from the fact that they were experts in the law, they were adjudicators of the law, they were the ones who held the law over the heads of the people, and in that role they had a lot of influence. And if the law itself were to be fulfilled in a Messiah, and a Messiah were to come on the scene, you know, it's regime change. Where does that leave the old regime? Probably not where they want to be. And I'm not sure that every man saw, thought through it to that degree and to that depth in the moment. But I know their hearts spoke to them, and what their hearts spoke to them was, we like what we've got, it's a pretty good deal, and we're not interested in change. Luke 5.37, which we studied in the course of this Luke series uh, quite a while ago, I want to remind you of something that Jesus taught in that part of Luke, because it's very apparent, very applicable to what we're doing here. Luke 5.37, Jesus said, No one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise new wine will burst the skins, and it will spill out, and the skins will be ruined. It's a picture of how the law being old and a means by which God spoke to men 
was to be replaced under a new covenant. In fact, the old had always been given so that you would know and recognize the new and accept it when it came. And you can't mix the two. You can't take the old and in the way that uh, parable in Luke 5 continues on, it starts talking about the old fabric and the new fabric. You can't add them together. One will tear the other. It's the same principle being given through a different kind of picture. You can't marry the two together. It's all or the other. It's all of one or all of the other. There's no mixing of the two. That's why Paul, if you read the book of Galatians, takes so much time with that church in that letter to differentiate the fact that why the law came, we were once under it, and it's done its purpose. That purpose being, of course, to reveal sin and the need for a Savior, ultimately to drive us to Christ. Having succeeded in doing that for a Christian, there's no more value in the law. The law has done its good and perfect work. It has been fulfilled in Christ's life. You now join in his success, leaving behind your failure under the law, your sin and the sense of your condemnation. To continue holding on to the old while trying to keep to the new is to violate the principles that Luke talks about in chapter 5. The old wine skin with new wine. The old garment with a new patch. They don't mix. They never were intended to. But for these men, the combining of the two was the only way they might have been open to a message from Jesus. As long as they could continue with the authority and the rules and the structure they benefited from, then they might have been open to something new from Jesus. But he never preached that. He preached conclusively the fact that they would have to leave behind what they had and accept what he was bringing. That was a wedding that they weren't interested in participating in. They were already wedded to another. Now consider the host's response here. Despite their attempts to avoid his anger, the host sees through their excuses. And as I said in Matthew's account, he goes even further. He kills all the people who will not accept him. And just like the Pharisees hearing this parable would have also seen the excuses as unreasonable. I mean, keep in mind, they're sitting around the table. Jesus just told them this parable. Even if they didn't realize he was talking about them, they were at least smart enough to realize those excuses were pretty bad. I can see through those myself. Well, just like they could see through them, so could the host in the parable. And what does he say now? The host tells the servant, which we know in this case is God the Father talking to his son, gather those who were not originally expected to attend the banquet. Go to the city and pull people out of the streets. Now, these were not the ones in the city who were originally expected to attend. These were not the ones who you would have logically assumed would have been there. So bringing it now back into Jesus' day, if the ones who had received the original invite were the Pharisees, the leaders, the privileged, knowledgeable men of the nation of Israel, if in fact they were going to be overlooked because they did not accept it when it arrived, then who's left? Well, the beggars, the blind, the lame, are the very people that Jesus has been receiving, been curing, and in turn have been declaring him to be Lord. Those are the ones in the same city who are going to be received. Now, the irony, of course, from the standpoint of the Pharisee is that they are the last ones the Pharisee would have assumed could have been at the table. They took great joy, in fact, in talking about the fact that they would be there and all those others wouldn't. And how do they speak of Jesus? He's the one who sits with sinners. He eats with sinners. He associates with tax collectors. Yeah, they're the ones that the servant is now picking to replace the privileged who rejected the offer. But then we find that's not enough. This table and this banquet is so big and so elaborate, so inclusive, that even after all the poor and neglected in this city have been uh, invited, there's plenty of room left. So now the servant goes looking for even more. He says, go reach beyond the city. Look for men along the highways and the hedges, which would imply, again, poor and downtrodden people, people who don't necessarily have a home, don't necessarily have any wealth or privilege of their own. But it goes beyond just that now because we're outside the city. And if the city is is generally supposed to be a picture now of Jerusalem or of the nation of Israel more specifically, then it's fair to say we're not just talking about poor now, we're talking about poor Gentiles. We're talking about those outside the original scope of the offer, of those who would normally have been in view in the original design of this meal. And we know exactly what the father did in reality to the nation of Israel as a result of their rejection of his son. By A.D. 70, he had scattered them and he had destroyed the city. But Paul explains in more detail now exactly how, in reality, God the Father carried out the very details of this parable. And Paul explains this in chapter 11 of Romans. And I'm not going to read that chapter. There's way too much there. But I want to cover just a few verses to give you a flavor of how closely what the parable predicts is what God has done. Romans 11.7, Paul trying to explain to his audience here why the nation of Israel 
had once been God's chosen people, but now had rejected their Messiah. And that seeming contradiction was causing alarm for his readers. And this is what he says to that concern. He says, what then? Meaning, what, do we, what are we to make of the fact that the nation of Israel has rejected their Messiah and been judged for it? He says, what then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it was written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? Oh, may it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. I want you to consider now what we see happening in that parable as we come back here to understanding chapter 11 of Romans a little better. When the host says to the servant, look, go get the downtrodden in the city, and he does that, and that's still, there's still room. Then he says, okay, I want you to go out into the outer parts of my country, outside the city. I want you to pull people off the highways out there. What's he doing? I mean, is it really the case that the host needs to have that many people at the table in order to feel honored? Is that his principal motivation? Well, I would argue that out of the way the parable's told, you get a distinct feeling that after they had rejected the offer, he goes out of his way to find the least worthy and puts them in the places of honor almost to spite the original crowd so that as they see the result of their rejection, it's, it, it amplifies their, their misery over having been rejected, over the fact that they made such a terrible mistake. Look at how Paul puts it in these verses. They didn't stumble so as to fall, did they? In other words, this isn't the end of the nation of Israel, is it? And he says, no, it's not. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. That's a picture of how those outside the city are being welcomed in now. And look at his last phrase, to make them jealous. And that's directed at the nation of Israel. Jealousy here is a more complex feeling than what you might associate it with in your own life. You know, you're jealous of somebody else's success or you're jealous of... A romantic interest, but it's a little more complex than that here. It's got that part maybe as well, but it's really intended to suggest more of a longing for the same thing. Or of a, by, by seeing what somebody else got, you begin to see your own mistake and wish you could be a part of what they're doing. Now, this isn't meant to suggest that on an individual level, every single Jew will have this experience. He's talking about the nation here. The whole comment, commentary through chapter 11 is nation-directed. So we're saying that the way the nation's history will go, there will be a time when the nation will experience the jealousy of seeing what God has done to the Gentile nations for what they did at an earlier point. And it will spur that nation to respond to him. We covered that at an earlier point, even in this class. So some have obtained what God offered. Who would they be in the course of the parable? Who are the ones within the nation of Israel who obtained what they were seeking? It would have been the poor and the downtrodden in the city. Right? The rest, he says, are hardened. That would be the nation of Israel generally. And that continues to this day. And he says in verse 11, the transgressions of that nation will end up being grace and salvation for the Gentiles who are invited in their place, ultimately to bring the nation to jealousy and to know him. Paul ends that chapter with several verses that reflect the fact that this is in fact God's plan to bring the nation back to him. In verses 25 through 27, he says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it was written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. All here is not a reference to every nation, every Jew that's ever lived. All here is a reference, as the whole chapter has been in, in Romans 11, to the nation at a given moment. Just as the nation in a given moment rejected Jesus, there will be a time in the future where the nation in a given moment will receive their Messiah. And we know, as I mentioned here in an earlier night, when that happens. That event is propagated in part by their knowledge of what Jesus has done in the Gentiles of the world. This Simple parable Jesus teaches in a few moments at a dinner table party uh, in the home of this Pharisee really illustrates the entire plan of God's salvation up to the point of the Messianic kingdom. That he would send, that he would promise a kingdom, that he would, to a, to a chosen people, he would send his servant on an appointed day, and yet that chosen people would largely reject him. He would respond to that rejection by 
going out and seeking the least of the world, both Jew and Gentile, to fill their place. And then ultimately, on a day to come, he will use that as jealousy to provoke them back to himself to fulfill the plan he has. We sit in the middle of that, still awaiting of that day when the nation returns to him. But we are also at that point where the Gentiles, you and I included, are being invited to that table. Every day, more are joining. Secondly, Jesus says those who claim to be looking forward to the honor of an invitation at this dinner are actually going to be left behind. I like the fact that he puts those two together. That the cares and desires of this world are trapping the very people who are claiming in their everyday life that they're waiting for the opportunity to join that dinner. Just like the guy who exclaimed at the party, blessed is, he, you know, blessed is the one who will eat at God's table. He meant us. He meant the whole group. He meant, aren't we, all inclu- aren't we all happy that we're part of that crowd? And yet, they're the very ones rejecting the offer as Jesus brings it. Their love for the law, their love for the world, their selfish, deceitful purposes and all that they do, all of that stands in the way, and so they reject the banquet. You know, it's really ironic as we finish this part and move forward. It's really ironic that what started this story was what? A moment where Jesus was seen to be a rude to his host. And in response to what the group must have felt was rudeness on Jesus' part, they launch off this, this throwaway line which leads to the parable. And in the parable, it's they themselves who are being shown as rude to a much more important host. He turns the tables on them even in the fact that they might have seen him in the way that they should have seen themselves. The parable... And the ones that came before it have really illustrated the changing circumstances of Jesus' ministry. I want to begin to weed this thread a little bit as we go into the rest of the chapter. Jesus is no longer offering the kingdom to the privileged. Remember last week I read those verses out of 1 Corinthians chapter 1? Paul talking to the church. He says, who among you was was wise? Who among you was was, uh, powerful? You know, we weren't. We were the lowest of the world. God has chosen the weak to shame the strong. He He has chosen the foolish to shame the wise. It is by intent that he is going out looking for the least so that he can shame those who turned him down the first time. And that rule, by the way, is not so perfectly absolute that a rich, powerful person could not become a Christian in today's world. That's self-evident. But I want you to consider where the gospel is most receptive in our day and has been throughout history. The least of the world. The least privileged nation. And conversely, I want you to think about the most privileged and powerful in every society, ours included. Are Are they receptive to the gospel generally? Are they friends of Christians, generally? I don't think you're looking here at simple, simple uh, political or social dynamics. I think you're looking at a spiritual issue that God himself said would be the case. And that does not mean, of course, that in the way we bring the gospel, we ourselves presume selectiveness. We would presume not to bring it to someone of power or authority because we assume God does not have them in mind. No, that's not our calling. We're to go to all four corners of the world, we're told, to preach the gospel to all the nations. In how that response takes place, you will begin to see God's wisdom at work. You know, most of Western Europe, people call post-Christian today. That's a term that now has, has gained favor in describing that part of the world. The world where Christianity really was cradled for many of the early centuries of, of post-resurrection history, now they are largely dead to the gospel. One of the hardest places to go if you're a missionary is Western Europe. I've known more missionaries, I've heard of more missionaries going there and coming back just devastated and broken, then I hear it going to you know, some much more dangerous parts of the world. Because from a spiritual standpoint, it's a much drier experience. There is not nearly the same kind of response to the gospel in that part of the world as you might see elsewhere. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be trying, no doubt, but it just suggests the fact that there is a correlation of some sort in God's plan for who people, who will receive and who will reject his message. And affluence and privilege seem to work counter to the purposes of the gospel. And not strictly for human reasons, not because it makes us less interested and less needy or whatever you might want to explain it by, but perhaps because it works against us in some spiritual aspect as well. Perhaps like these men did in their day. Perhaps they have things they aren't willing to be unwedded from in order to receive what God is offering. I'm not sure I can explain it totally. But any man or any woman is a legitimate target for the gospel. And we aren't going to discriminate. But I would also ask, are we doing reverse discrimination without even realizing it? Are we spending a lot of time preaching and teaching and ministering to affluent aspects of our culture for whatever reason, whether it's because we prefer or or identify with that group or because they're more accessible from where we live? I don't know. And are we missing the boat, spiritually speaking, in where we bring the gospel? 
If the message is better received in many cases from the least privileged, whether by design or just by you know, the fact that their earthly needs drive them to look for a new solution, whichever the reason, are we bringing the gospel when they're ready or are we uh, essentially teaching the same circle of friends we have that all know what we know and are comfortable in our presence? I wonder sometimes about that and I, I, I fall prey to it myself. And I wonder whether or not we see God's hand in the fact, as we taught earlier, that his own honor as a host is magnified when the guests that he positions around the table are less worthy rather than more worthy. And that himself that may explain itself why he does what he does. Well, with the time remaining, I want to push through the rest of chapter 14 today if we can. Let's look at chapter 14, verse 25, and, and keep moving. Now, large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and he's not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Pausing there, Luke's narrative here moves forward into a totally new context. And as, as he transitions, Luke kind of comes away from that and now goes to this new focus in Jesus' ministry, we're going to see that carried out here at the rest of this chapter. And we're told here at the beginning of chapter, or at the beginning of these verses, verse 25, large crowds were going along with him. So we've left the banquet scene. We've left the dinner we've been in all along in this chapter so far. And we have large crowds. Remember what we studied perhaps a chapter or so ago? We, the, the crowds around Jesus at this point, it's, at one point are described as a, tha- a ten, crowd of 10,000, a myriad, which is literally 10,000 in the Greek. I don't know that that suggests that it's literally just to the man 10,000 people. I think the point is more that there are thousands and thousands of people following Jesus by this point. So the crowds are huge. And they're following him consistently wherever he goes. Which is interesting because if you think about it, it means they've left behind something, hasn't it? They don't know where he's going. Remember, he's got a one-way trip. He's not circling back. So if they started following him and he just keeps walking and they just keep walking, they've just left something. There's an implicit agreement that I am now following you. I'm leaving something behind. I'm now part of whatever you're doing and whatever life I had before I started walking behind you, I've left that behind. That's implicit, more so in this day than in yours and mine today. I mean, you can follow somebody around this city all you want. No one knows for sure if you're not going to go home at night, right? Because you can drive in a car and go a long distance. You walk a day's journey with this man, you're a day away from home. And if you walk another day's journey, you're, you know, it's pretty evident at some point you're with him. And that's what's going on with this crowd because it says large crowds were going along with him which means they had joined his group, so to speak. And he addresses this crowd with a two-part requirement for discipleship, followed by two illustrations. Let's look at those for a minute. First, he says, if one wants to be my disciple, they must hate their immediate family and even their own life. That's pretty strong words. And if you're like me, the first time you read those through, you wonder, well, just to what extent is he suggesting I have to do this? In fact, is it a mandate? Is it, not, is it spoken in the sense of, I just have to immediately start hating those people and be done with it? That doesn't make sense on his face, does it? Jesus himself honors his own mother by assigning her to John, the, the Apostle John at his death so that she would have someone to care for her. There's not an implicit sense here that we are to, by design, hate our family. That's not, necessi- that's not the point here at all. This phrase is widely understood to mean, by comparison... That discipleship with Christ means placing all earthly relationships second. Now, to the extent that those relationships don't demand that you or I deny Christ or in any way fall back from our discipleship and our following of Him, then those relationships can continue every bit as loving and as committed as they are today. But if those people in those relationships begin to place demands on us that run counter to the ones Christ is putting on us specifically in discipleship, well, that's where I believe this statement comes into play. You don't jump right to the hating moment, maybe, because you're just going to try to work it out, I know, but the point is that those relationships and their demands always come second to the one you have in Christ. That's a discipleship 
requirement. And by the way, this includes our own personal desires, which is the point about you're hating your own life. If, if I were to walk to, up to any Western, uh, someone coming out of a Western culture, and I'd say in particular someone coming out of this country's culture, and I would say to them, tell me what your life means. Define your life for me. Uh, they'd struggle, I'm sure. They'd have different approaches to the question. But almost in every case, I will tell you that, uh, that I bet that the answers would come down to something material. In some sense, material. Leaving a legacy for my children, you know, an inheritance for my family, or being, you know, having a secure retirement, or you know, doing something in my job that's notable, or serving humanity in some specific way, which may sound very altruistic, but I'll bet if you ask them to define what serving humanity really looks like, it would still come down to something material for the most part. Building something, enhancing something, changing something in the world, in the material world. And in that sense, we deny ourselves if we are a disciple because we give up those goals. True discipleship means I don't have a personal goal, a personal stake in this world apart from what Christ himself directs me to do. Nothing comes before that direction. Now, that direction may include a house, a car, and all kinds of earthly possessions if he chooses that. But the point is it's because he's given you the freedom to have it, not because he said, oh, work that into my plan. It's a challenging notion. Before I go into the illustrations, let me show you how much this mirrors something that Moses said about a man named Levi. Within the nation of Israel, as he was dying and he blessed many in the nation of Israel, he specifically blessed Levi among others. Look at how he talked about Levi and, more particularly, how Levi assumed the role of priest. Remember how the nation of Israel, in the way God designed it, had one tribe, the Levites in the tribe of Levi who would be forever set apart to serve God as priest. Now, that's a pretty close parallel to what we're talking about here. Discipleship. Giving up the world to serve God as your first and foremost concern in life. As the reason you have life. The reason He's brought you into the world. That's what Levi did. Now, look at what Moses says about Levi and his willingness to pick up that, um, that ministry. In Deuteronomy 33, 8, Of Levi, Moses said, Let your thumen and your ermine belong to your godly man, whom you proved at Massah, and whom you contended at the waters of Mirabah. And then look at verse 9. He says this, Of Levi, who said of his father and his mother, I did not consider them. And he did not acknowledge his brothers, nor did he regard his own sons, for they observed your word and kept your commandment. That in the way Levi responded to the command God gave him, they did not regard the family patriarchal heritage. They were willing to forego an inheritance in the land. They were willing to forego the, the normal expectation of a father or of a man in that culture, which was that they would build a legacy through their offspring, through their family and family name. No, Levi had given all that over to the Lord. Their name would be synonymous with serving the Lord and no other. And with no other heritage, no other inheritance, nothing else but God himself and the provision they got from that service. That's what was honoring in the way Levi responded to his calling. And I believe that's the parallel you can draw for what Christ is saying here about discipleship. Furthermore, the second thing he says about discipleship, you've got to be willing to carry your own cross. A phrase we've heard before, right? And many of us, I'm sure, have heard it explained one way or another. We know that carrying your cross is a graphic depiction of the crucifixion. And if you've ever seen stories on Jesus' death and how the crucifixions took place, you should know very well that the condemned were called upon to carry the, the horizontal cross member of the cross, of the, the, the beam on which they were nailed. They were called upon to carry that to the point of their crucifixion. That was a part of the punishment. And to put it in more, I guess, contemporary terms, here's the way you would say ver that verse perhaps today. You might say something like, you have to be willing to pull on your own noose. You have to be willing to take a seat in your electric chair. It's that sense. Not just that you're willing to die, but in the way that Christ died. Willingly, without uttering a, a word, without fighting back, willingly going to the cross to fulfill the, the Father's command on Him that He would do it. You know, Father, if you'd be willing, take this cup from me. But if it be your will, send me forward. And that's what He did. And in that same way, a disciple has to have that kind of commitment. Not just the willingness to die. That's one thing. The willingness to do it knowing it's coming and go willingly toward it. Seated, you know, sit down in the electric chair and strap yourself in if that's what's called upon. It's that sense in the reading. But now the question I think you have to ask, and I hope it's on your mind. If it's not, this is where you ought to be in this, in this point of the teaching. By disciple, does Jesus mean every believer? Or maybe another way to say it is, does he mean that these are qualifications to be saved? 
Does that what he mean? Is that what he means by disciple? If you're not willing to do these things, you're not a believer. You're somehow you should somehow question whether or not you are in the family of God, that you are saved. Is that what he means here? Must all believers be willing to do these things? The fairest reading of this text is no. The fairest reading of this text would say no, that's not what he means. The word disciple can be used in many ways. In its generic sense, it simply means pupil or student, or maybe better in this sense, follower. Because remember, he's being followed by crowds of people. That's what introduced this whole issue in the text. And it means more specifically, I think, by what Jesus has just said, someone who would pattern their life after Jesus and live a similar life and declare their willingness to do that. Someone who stands up like someone in this crowd might have done and says, I'm a disciple of yours, Jesus. I'm following you wherever you're willing to go. He's saying, you, you, you're a disciple? You want to be my follower? You want to be my disciple? Okay, here's what that means. And then he gave them these two requirements. Walter Wiersbe, who was a famous preacher in the earlier half of the 20th century, said it this way, Salvation is open to all who will come by faith, but discipleship is for believers willing to pay a price. Salvation means coming to the cross and trusting Jesus. Discipleship means carrying the cross and following Jesus. And you can be one and not the other. To put it simply, you can be a believer who understands the truth of the gospel and has trusted in Christ for your salvation, and then you turn right around and you go back to the world. Where have we seen this described in the Scriptures already in our study of Luke? Chapter 8, the parable of the sower and the seed. The condition three Christian, which I preached on in this in this study a while back. The parable of the sower and the seed. And in particular, in the condition three part of that parable, the one that grows but is choked out by the cares and the pleasures and the desires that they have in this world, that is the Christian for whom discipleship was just not on the table. That they were willing to believe and certainly did believe and there is life, but there's no fruit. And if you remember that parable, you remember that was the defining difference between three and four. No fruit. Nothing to show of it. A Christian that came into the world and is no less a Christian in that sense, but is certainly not one who will have an honored seat at that table. And that's really the focus in chapter 14. If you are not a believer, he wants to make clear the fact that rejecting him keeps you away from that table. And for many in his day, that was exactly the message. That was the extent of the message. That was all they ever could hear. But for those who knew the difference, who had already received him as their Messiah, now he says, you know what? That's not enough. Discipleship is a far more serious place in your life than merely accepting me as your, as your Messiah. And he's thinking, I, I have to believe specifically about these 12 men that have followed him up to this point. That more than even the rest of the crowd, these are the men who have to be disciples. You know, it's not optional for them if they're to carry out the mission he has in mind for them. They have to go forward. And they have to do the very things he just said. How many of them are scorned by their family, rejected by their own people, by the leaders and by the rest of the nation? How many of them died a death similar to their, their, their Messiah? Church lore, church history will tell us all but one. And, and, and we don't even know for sure how John died. And as we've said before, Luke narrowing his focus here, really honing in on Jesus' presentation. He's really trying to demonstrate that, that Jesus' teaching diverges to the two audiences he now has. That on the one hand, he delivers a message to the Pharisees, these corrupt men on lost opportunity, on the fact that they are they have nothing to look forward to but judgment. That, that, that lost opportunity extends as well to anyone in the crowd who would follow after those Pharisees and after their teaching. Remember, they're like tombs, hidden tombs, and anyone who walks over them is defiled. Their corrupting influence extends beyond themselves. And to them, Jesus teaches in parables only because they are not appointed to know the truth. But then there are the believers around him, those who have caught the message. And many in that crowd that followed him probably were believers, although I doubt all could have been. And especially to the disciples in that group, he preaches on kingdom lessons designed to prepare them for what lay ahead and not to shrink back. And look at the illustrations he used to make that point. I think with the illustrations that come at the end of this chapter, you really get to see the truth of what I'm saying here. He begins with a man who wants to build a tower. In the Greek, tower is pergos. Pergos can actually mean in that day a, a broad range of buildings. Tower is a literal translation, but it could have meant like a, a storehouse for grain in a farm. It could have meant a work, a work shed on a farm. It was not literally just this, you know, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down your hair kind of tower. It was something more general. And in that you get a, a better sense of it because we're talking about a useful building, something people would have built commonly, not just some weird kind of tower you put on the corner of your property. And building a tower in that day was difficult. 
you know, they didn't have uh, a lot of sophisticated equipment, so it was difficult labor. It was costly work because you had to pay people, you had to buy the materials. But if the work were finished, there was a clear, obvious reward in that work. The usefulness of the building was your reward. The testimony of the builder's resourcefulness and of his planning stood with that building for all to see. Your determination to see through a difficult project. The fact that it was finished became a testimony to the builder in and of itself, never mind its own physical usefulness. The accomplishment brought honor to the one who went, went through the effort to build it. But now, in light of what he says here, if that person went to the effort to start that kind of a project and never finished it, now the irony is, the irony is that what would have stood as an honor to him where it finished in its half-completed form stands as what? An indictment. Stands as an as a embarrassment. It almost, it'd be better if it wasn't there at all, right? You'd almost want to invest some effort to tear the thing down rather than leave it half-built because of what it said about the builder. It was all or none. You can't go halfway and get half the honor. That's the point. There is no in-between. And in fact, the halfway point is worse than starting, in some sense, in the sense of how it reflects on the person. And then look at the second half of the example. And I'll just make the point here, before I move on, make sure, you know, if you want to apply this to yourself today, make sure you know what you're signing up for before you start something significant in this spiritual context. And again, I don't believe this is referring to someone's walk into the faith. I wouldn't talk to someone who has contemplated a confession of faith and say, whoa, whoa, before you make this confession of faith, let me tell you about this example of this tower. You know, that's, not the, that's not the application of it. If someone has a heart to believe, by all means, have them confess. Preach the gospel and, and seek a confession if they would give you one. Because it's, ultimately, that is the predecessor to any good work that can be done. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. There must be faith first. But now, having believed, there is a higher calling of discipleship awaiting them. And that discipleship calling... In, you know, the, the phrase, I think I even heard it used this, this uh, weekend when, when Roger was introducing the new members. He said, there's, you know, salvation is free, but discipleship is costly. Salvation is free, and then living it out is an is a expensive proposition for somebody. And that's exactly the point of this parable. Look at the second example, an even more insightful one in some ways. Jesus raises the stakes here with this next example. He said, if the disciples aren't prepared to consider the cost and plan accordingly, they're not going to survive the battle. That awaits them. He cites this king who's got to decide in advance if he can defeat an army with his smaller force. You notice he's got the smaller of the two forces, but it doesn't automatically imply he can't, does it? It says the king sits down and he looks at his forces, makes an assessment and says, okay, I've got this, the enemy's got that, can I win? Now the answer potentially could be yes, in which case the, uh, what's, what you would conclude then is go forward. Only if you decide you can't win, then you ought to pull back. There's a saying that says, the one who draws a sword throws away the scabbard. It reflects the fact that if you go into a serious battle, it's an all or none proposition. Once you pull out the sword, you're going for it. You, 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 there's no putting it back in. Because at that point, the enemy is going to come at you with equal force and equal desire. And you can't stop the battle midway. So you better make that calculation before you get into the fight. Jesus suggests here, what? That we make peace with the world? Is that what he's suggesting? That because we can't win the battle, we need to take a look at it beforehand, not get into it at all and just... Go back and make peace with the world, negotiate some kind of peace? Well, that's true only if we don't think we have the stronger force. Only if we think that our 10,000 is not strong enough to defeat the 20,000 in this parable. And if that's what a believer thinks, they should not enter the battle. Do you understand that? If that's what a believer believes, if they do not see the power of God working through them, if they do not believe that they have some mission that God's called them to, if they do not believe that they can succeed in some way, they should hold back. And I'm not saying they're right to hold back. I'm saying they probably are immature and don't appreciate what they have at their disposal. But at least they ought to know that it's better not to go into that battle than it is to go halfway, build half a tower, so to speak, and give up. I often use the analogy of a football game and a football player and a coach. And if Jesus is our coach, so to speak, and we're playing on his team... And, and he's trying to win this game, is he going to put somebody in who's going to quit halfway through the play? He's better to leave you on the bench. And Jesus is saying, look, if you want to be a disciple, let's not kid ourselves about what that takes and what it means you have to be willing to do. If you want to be a disciple, be prepared to go all the way in the spiritual warfare that lies ahead of you. And of course, that's what the disciples did. The twelve apostles took the message of the gospel to their death. And their message was responsible for their death. 
Jesus sums it up this way in Luke 14.34. He says, Therefore, salt is good, but even salt, even if salt has become, or but if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. We can sum this up. Salt is good. In ancient times, it was a critical resource. You could name the ways it was used. It was used to sustain life, both human and animal life. You had to have a certain amount of salt. But it was also used to fertilize the land. A little bit of salt in soil helps as a fertilizer. The other example you may not have picked up on or not understood is manure was a useful resource as well for fertilizer, but it would decay quickly. And if I mixed salt in with manure, it would, de- it would retard the decay process and let it sit longer so I could use it when I needed it. But salt came from marsh lands in Jesus' day. You know, the very little salt was gained from, from uh, seawater that was evaporated. Most had, you know, had to go into marshy lands that were brackish water, salt water and fresh water mixed together, and you could find salt deposits and you could get them out of the ground. But they came out with a lot of impurities. So it wasn't possible to get pure salt. You had this mixture of salt and other impurities that you couldn't separate out the impurities very easily. So you used it in this way. And depending on its purity would determine whether you could use it for food or whether you had to use it exclusively for you know, the fertilizing. But if you didn't store the salt right, moisture and other things could leach out the salt from this you know, combination mixture, or from the contaminants that held the salt together. And if the salt leached out, what did you have left? You went to your salt store, your salt barn, and you still had material in there, but no salt because the salt piece of it had leached away and all you had left were the impurities. And so that's what he means when he says, if salt loses its saltiness, what good is it? If you can't use it for anything at that point, you just throw it out. That's what often confuses people because you don't know how to salt lose saltiness. It's in that sense that it could be lost. That in his day, it was possible. What's his application? If a believer is to be a disciple, that person has to be as useful to God as salt is to men. In relative terms. You know, what does salt do? It brings life. It brings life and it rejuvenates the land and the people. The disciples had to be like that. They had to be an antidote to decay in the world, in the way that the message influenced the world. And it had to stand out. You know, salt by its nature enhances flavor, makes something stand out. And that was, of course, what being Christ-like in a world would look like, standing out in the world. These were all components of what discipleship meant. You had to be willing to stand out. You had to be willing to be salt and light in the sense of how salt influences the world. And in doing that, you could be a disciple. And doing that brings a cost. But it also brings eternal reward. It also is the reason why you sit at a seat of honor around that table. I, I, I think that's probably where my passion lies the most in, in the times I do have chances to teach, is in the fact that we lack what I think the Jewish culture took in, in, just inherently, which was an appreciation that we're living for something greater. The Jewish, though many of them were wrong to think they were included, they at least understood the biblical principle. That this is not the world we invest in, it's the next. That there will come a day when we will sit around a table and all things will be known and all eyes will be opened and only then will we have a chance to sit back and think, gosh, I had 80-something years on life and what did I do with that? Think about what I could have done. Look at so-and-so sitting way up there and what kind of honor will now come in this new world that we will live in eternally. And all that time I thought he was a loser for spending all his money the way he was and spending all his time the way he was and look what he was doing for God the whole time. And meanwhile... The empire I built is rotting all away with the rest of the world and I'm sitting way out here on the end of the table. What an idiot I was. How many people will be like that in the kingdom? How many people became a Christian and died at an early age from a disease or from martyrdom who will sit very near the front of that table because they sacrificed all and it really had nothing to do with how much time and effort you put into life here or how long you lived or any of the things we measure success by. It really came down to obedience and nothing more. And the obedience to die an early death may have been the greatest thing that person could do for God. Not that we wish to die early. Our obedience comes as a function of what we're told to do, not what we think God wants us to do. But the fact is, what are we doing and why are we doing it? What's at stake? Matthew says it this way, and I'll end with these verses out of Matthew. Matthew 5.11 Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does any, anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket. 
but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's the test. It's, not, it's one thing to be you know, overtly Christian in your everyday life and, and witnessing to people, but if the effect of your work is not to bring glory to the Father who is in heaven, you're still missing it somewhere. We all are. That's our calling as Christians. That is why we're still here and not with Him now. That's why He created us. Let's go to prayer and then a little time of fellowship and questions. Father, um, I thank You for the opportunity and the strength to teach. I pray, Father, that the message has been according to Your will. And I pray, Father, more importantly, that each of us go out of here with a clear understanding of what You've called us to do and and a courage, Father, to do it with whatever time we have left to live this life for You. May it be devoted to You. May we seek to be disciples, Father, and may we live up to that calling. And... Father, if it be your will, I pray we be back next week to continue in chapter 15. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.